Now the scene shifts and Jesus is again talking to the entire multitude. Judge not that ye be not judged. The Joseph Smith translation helps. Judge not unrighteously, but judge righteous judgment. Context, judge in the way the Lord would judge. There's one negative and one positive. Do not condemn. Do not advance the day of judgment to your own time and into your own hands. Leave that into the hands of God. But second, recognize that if you in fact condemn, usually without knowing much about the inward motivation, about the heart, about the dilemmas of the person you're judging, if you do, and do so harshly, then you yourself shall be so judged. With what measure ye meet, it shall be measured to you again. This is a law of life. It has Old Testament precedents and can be put in two rather bold ways. One is that if a person digs a pit for another in due time, he himself will fall into his own pit. And the second is that if we rejoice in the adversity or ill fortune of another, we ourselves will be called to pass through that very trial. Related to this is Jesus' statement regarding moat beam sickness. That is, paraphrasing, the problem we face when we ourselves ascribe a log as big as a telephone pole to our brother's eye and are oblivious to the fact that we have that in ours and that there's only a speck in his. How wilt thou say to thy brother, let me pull the log out of thine eye, and behold, the beam is in thine own eye. Thou hypocrite, first cast the beam out of thine own, and then thou shalt see clearly to help thy brother. We are inspired by revelation that tells us that spiritual gifts follow from the reception of the Holy Ghost, and that none of us if we are faithful, is left bereft of at least one gift. And one of those gifts is a gift of judgment. It is called discernment. It is the ability given of God to recognize in what others would think was an apparently evil person good, and to recognize in what others would think to be an apparently good person evil. And this, in part, for warning or for admonition for our own lives, but also to make possible official functions, including that of a bishop, who is properly called a common judge in Israel. Actually, he has to be uncommon. He has to be distinct from and carry a heavier load than the others in the role of acting for, calling for, speaking for, and performing blessings for the living God. This is a form of judgment and is divinely approved. But notice that it is not the same as condemning others, nor does it substitute for proper processes, even in the church, which include councils, high council courts, and the right of a person who is accused 
by anyone to have witnesses and to be appropriately treated. Thou hypocrite extends down to another kind of hypocrisy. Jesus refers to good and evil trees. And these instructions precede an event where he taught the lesson in an active way. Recall that as he ascended one day near or just beyond Bethany, he saw in the distance a fig tree which had put forth its leaves. And that signifies two things. It means that it is indeed spring and that summer is nigh, but if a fig tree puts forth its leaves, it also puts forth at the same time its fruit. So from a distance, he could assume there was fruit. When he reached the tree, not one fig. And Jesus cursed the fig tree. And there are two or three different versions of the sequel, but that tree no longer was alive. Now the symbolism is hard to miss, for the tree was advertising that it was fruitful. It had all of the signs. It was saying in effect publicly, I am a good tree, and in fact did not have a single fig. The message is that if we pretend righteousness, if we give lip service to righteousness, but are not fruitful, then we will be, and this is the statement, hewn down, as that tree was, and cast into the fire. Some have felt that this is a negative element in Jesus' life, not worthy of him, to curse a defenseless fig tree. But notice that the tree was already, in the sense of its lack of fruitfulness, dead. And such a tree only cumbers the vineyard. And such a tree is, in fact, eventually hewn down. By their fruits, Jesus goes on to say, ye shall know them, not by their leaves, not by their pretense. And all this given in the context of the future when there would arise false prophets. Jesus did not say there will be no prophets. That would have been a categorical way to prevent any future misunderstanding. He could have said to his disciples, in the future, after I leave, there will be no one claiming to be a prophet who is a true prophet. Didn't say that. He said, beware of false prophets who come in sheep's clothing. Now, there are the leaves, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them, that is, you shall know the true from the false in one way, by their fruits. And as one sits on the Mount of Beatitudes and looks out at orange groves, lemon groves, fig trees, palm trees, one asks himself, how could anybody be confused? Men do not gather grapes from thorns. Men do not gather figs of thistles. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, a corrupt tree does not. Jesus returns not only here, but in every other setting of our standard works to this image of the living tree, the tree of life that bears fruit, 
and further in the vision of Lehi and then repeated to Nephi the fruit we learn is so vivid that it is sweet above all that is sweet it is pure above all that is pure it is white above all that is white white grapes I should say in passing are harvested today in the magnificent vineyards of Hebron and these particular grapes are in fact the sweetest we know that these symbolize for Jesus and this was explained to the prophet Lehi and his son the love of God that sheddeth itself abroad in the hearts of the children of men and an angelic voice adds yea and the most joyous to the soul I back up now for the verse pertaining to whether the Father will or will not give. Ask, Jesus says, and it shall be given. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened. That's three repetitions. Now we have three more. Everyone that asketh receiveth. He that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh it shall be opened. Six times. And a reflection of that verse can be found 50 times in the Doctrine and Covenants. Why so often this redundant statement, seek, seek, seek. Well, there is a story about a little boy who is visiting his grandfather. One day he goes out to play and shortly bursts back into the house, crying as if his heart will break. The grandfather stoops down. Why are you crying? What happened? And the little boy says, we were playing hide-and-seek. I went and hid, and no one came for me. They all ran away. And the grandfather says, now you know how God feels. He hides, and no one comes for him. He pleads with us to seek. He pleads with us to ask and promises that only on that condition will he open to the choicest of blessings. Who is there, Jesus says, comparing man to the Father, who is there among you if his son asks bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent? If ye then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father who is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? That's the third Nephi. The Joseph Smith translation adds, How much more shall your Father give you the Holy Spirit if you ask him? So it is again both temporal and spiritual. All this then is the context of the famous golden rule. Hillel the great rabbi who was born within the same range of time as Jesus was once asked by a would-be proselyte, tell me, uh, while you're standing on one leg, the law and the prophets, and if you can do so, I will become a convert. And he answered, in effect, that which you would not have men do to you, do not do to them. All else is commentary. Jesus' version 
is positive. All things whatsoever ye would that men should do to you, do ye even so to them, for this is the law and the prophets. This is the golden rule. We give without stint because the Father has given and the Master has given without stint. And now a exclusionary clause which has been troublesome to some. Enter ye in at the straight gate. Wide is the gate and broad the way that leadeth to destruction, modern revelation says, to the deaths, with an S added. Straight is the gate and narrow the way that leadeth to life, modern revelation adds, to the lives. And few there be that find it. And the added phrase from our modern scripture, because ye receive me not in the world. Now I take it to mean both in this world, but also to mean you receive me not in your world, in your own inner world, in your own struggles and in your own predicament. You receive me only with your lips. Hence, the verse follows, not everyone that saith unto me, lip service, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father who is in heaven. No one can do the will of the Father in heaven until he has received Christ in this world. And the promise that some will say, Lord, Lord, have we not done all these things, prophesied, etc., is revised by Joseph Smith. It reads in the King James, Then will I profess to them, I never knew you. The Joseph Smith translation, You never knew me. And know in scriptural usage is a more powerful word than it often functions in our language. Know is a participative kind of knowledge. Know is not simply the distant knowledge of one who can state a true proposition. Know is being united with one until you cease to be totally distinct or alienated or separated. That is the higher knowledge that only comes with the Spirit and with the reception of Christ. Otherwise, it will be said, I never knew you, you never knew me, Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Jesus completes this discourse using the metaphor of the man who builds his house either upon a rock or upon the sand. It's necessary to grasp two principles that are clear as one travels in the Holy Land today to make sense of these verses. Wherever one travels, he sees outcroppings of rock and also hears much talk of bedrock as the basis for building. He also sees sheep and lambs. And in modern scripture, Jesus compares himself, after describing us as a little flock, as both the stone of Israel and 
the good shepherd, and then says, He that buildeth upon this rock shall never fall. In Third Nephi, after introducing the sacrament, he makes it clear that the rock he wishes his disciples to build on that ultimately is himself is the rock of the sacrament. He says, Whoso keepeth these sayings, and these sayings have been sayings that pertain to the sacrament and being filled, is built upon the rock. A man, apparently, who chooses a sandy foundation without solid foundations is going to face the time when with the gully washers, as they are called, that make the huge wadis descending like a flood, and when so, his house will not stand. Uh, the floods and the rain and the wind are not reserved just to the person who builds on sand. All men who receive the sayings of Jesus and his teachings, and ultimately him, will face rain and floods and wind. In other words, all men will suffer trial and affliction, disciple or not. Everyone that heareth these sayings, he says in Third Nephi, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man who built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. Just north of the present Jerusalem center, which is built on bedrock, and as a matter of fact, over 300 pilings that were driven down for support. There is the remnant of an ancient house. One uh, is still in at least tolerable condition, which actually functioned anciently as the guard house in a vineyard. But another is just below a culvert that has been placed there to gather the floods during the rainy season, and it has been shattered, and only a few stones remain one on top of the other, and the rest are scattered. The parable, the metaphor, is there in the 20th century, vividly. And of course, the higher one builds, the, the more one erects his house on false assumptions and presumptions, and without the vision of eternity the greater the fall when adversity strikes. On the other hand, there is hardly a house today in Jerusalem that is not built of rock, for the law requires that they be built of stone and that they uh, be safely built according to code. Not only that, but they are able to endure the worst of storms. There is a prevailing east wind in Jerusalem, so strong and so frequent that most of the trees that are at the upper end of the Mount of Olives are bent eastward. And so on other hills uh, up and down the corridor. And they are reminders of the persistence of wind
wind even of the old saying that an evil wind is portended or ominous. Well, Jesus has just addressed a multitude who have survived an earthquake that lasted three long hours. And one of the most authentic notes in the book is the statement that some said it was longer, having been as I have in an earthquake for 20 seconds and having experienced the terror and the insecurity and even the nausea of that brief fleeting time, I cannot comprehend a three-hour earthquake in which whole cities are swallowed up in the earth and others overrun with the sea heaving beyond its bounds. I can only identify enough to say that these people certainly understood the difference between a house built on a rock and a house that could be flooded away. And having been through that experience, I suspect they, more than any who heard these sayings, then or later, were moved to recognize two things with which I close. That Jesus, who had descended from heaven in peace with a voice that pierced them to the very center, notwithstanding it was not a loud voice, a voice that caused their hearts to burn, could truly say that he was the law and that he had brought power from on high. And the second is that they would recognize from having been in touch and he invited them to feel in both senses he invited them to reach out with their hands and in that sense feel but also he invited them to feel what he had felt when these wounds were inflicted he was a living prayer and he was to them the living strength of life upon which they could rely and in whom they could trust. All the passages in ancient scripture that speak of fearing God really mean, according to the linguistic analysis, trust God. And if you have witnessed the rains and the winds and the bludgeonings and beatings, and then for contrast been embraced by the living God, you are prepared to build, and what you build will never fall. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.